We don't need much of a sermon today because that was a sermon, wasn't it? Wow. God is so good to us to give us these word, these, these not word pictures, physical pictures that preach to our hearts and communicate to us about what God is doing in, in, in our lives spiritually. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want to point out a couple ways that God is working in our body. This morning, as we gather together, we are celebrating a lot of things. We're celebrating two typical expressions of unity, I want to call them, and one exceptional expression of unity. Typical because they are the normal ways that God gives us that we express something that God's teaching us. And exceptional because it is something that we don't do very often, even though if you've just been coming to our church for the last six months, you might think this is common practice. I promise you it's not. But something that God is doing to let us express unity in a very special and unique way that probably will never happen in the history of our church again. And in each of these expressions, there is both a a spiritual reality and a a physical reality. This morning in the Sunday school class where we talked about the story of the Bible, the uh, discipleship uh, class that met over there, we we talked about how God made a world, he created it good. The physical world that God created was good. We're so tempted in our world, especially as Christians, to think, Physical is bad and spiritual is good, as if there's some kind of this duality. Maybe we see it expressed, uh, especially around in the Bay Area, a lot in the yin-yang, right? Where you have the white and the dark, and they're in balance, and there's a duality. Yet that's not how the Scripture portrays our world, that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good, and one day we'll get rid of physical and everything will be spiritual. That's not at all what the Scripture teaches us. Instead, God gives us a physical reality that oftentimes points to a spiritual reality. The physical realities show us the the spiritual things, the parts of our world that we can't see and smell and touch. He helps us to do that through the physical reality in which we can see and feel and touch. They're singing the song, and I'm breaking the bread And as they're breaking the bread and they're singing of God's mercy, just that very physical act was moving to me. I felt moved in my spirit, even though there's nothing super spiritual about breaking a piece of bread, but the physical act reminded me of what Christ has done and showing his mercy through us on the cross. That's why we do it, and that's why we take it publicly. The two typical expressions that we do, we do every Sunday. Well, not every Sunday, but we should. We want to do them every Sunday. They're the two ordinances that God gives to us to do. Sacraments, sometimes people call them. At the moment of our salvation, when every single one of us who's put our faith and trust in Christ, we are said to be baptized spiritually. The Holy Spirit of God comes into our life and regenerates us, and he does something that is going on in our lives that we can't see or feel or touch. It's a spiritual reality. We can't see it. We are baptized into Christ. We are baptized into the larger body of believers, but it's something that's going on spiritually. It's not something that's going on physically. But today, we got to witness a water baptism in which we heard our brother declare and commit and follow after Jesus Christ in a a physical way. 
When he went under the water, he saw it. He felt it. He smelled it probably. I hope he didn't taste it, but he, he could have if he had opened his mouth. In his water baptism, he physically professed a spiritual reality and confessed to us all his oneness with us who have been saved and his oneness with Jesus Christ, the spiritual and the physical. And later, at the end of the service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And in that, we are spiritually talking about the fact that we've been redeemed to God through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for us, that spiritually we are in Christ, and spiritually all of us who are partaking of that table are together in Christ. Spiritually, that's true. His death is our death. There's a spiritual unity that is invisible, but it's true for all of us who are in Christ. Physically, then, we will come together. We will come to the front, those of us who profess our faith in Jesus, and we will take the bread, and we will take the cup, and we will physically eat, and we will physically drink together. The physical eating and the drinking together points to a spiritual taking and a spiritual belonging together. And then lastly, at the end of our service, we will vote to make two churches one. We recognize that in a spiritual sense, they're already one. In Christ, we are already one. Christ didn't redeem Redeemer Church and Hillview Baptist Church differently. No, we are one in Christ. And even as I look here, I realize there's visitors from other churches that are visiting this morning, and we recognize that you are still part of the body of Christ. You are one in Christ. There's a spiritual reality that we declare and believe and trust in. Sometimes that's called the Catholic understanding. Not Catholic, like Holy Spirit Catholic Church, but with a small c, Catholic is the the word that's used. It means according to the whole, or in general, or universal. There's one invisible church that's known to God, the redeemed of all the people of all over the world who are calling on Jesus Christ as their Savior, that Christ knows and is purchased with his blood. That Catholic church in that small c sort of way. But... God did not just give us the invisible church that's all over the world. He also gave us a physical church, a visible church made up of all true believers who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Visible, local expressions, imperfect, though they may be, with warts and all, and we see them on a regular basis. You get to know your pastor like, hey, you're not that perfect. And they're like, yeah, you're right. Not yet. One day in heaven I will be, but today I'm not. We get to know each other, and we live in this physical world. The reality of this this physical reality is lived out in these local churches that God gives to us to help us to learn more about that universal reality that he's working out around the world and throughout eternity. And we recognize that one day that perfect reality will be ours in heaven. And as a church, we will vote today Two churches voting, saying we believe that we can better serve God and fulfill Christ's mission here in the Tri-Cities area of the East Bay as one local church, and we can feel that we can do that better as one than as two. Does anyone, I, I, I need to show an illustration. I'm wondering if someone has a coin that I can use. Any of our kids they have a coin? Someone have a coin? No, no coins. Hudson, you got a coin there? Your mom's going to give you one, Maybe. No? Okay, you got one? Okay, throw it. Well, bring it up here, Daniel. I'm afraid if you throw it, I'll be embarrassed. 
Okay. So this is, thank you. I'm glad this is an American coin. If this was a Canadian coin or a Mexican coin, peso, we'd be in trouble. But on our coins, it says something, right? Does anyone know what it says? Any of you Latin experts? Or did anyone know what it says on our coins? It says a couple things on our coins. It says liberty. It says in God we trust. And this, in this one, actually, it says uh, the Everglades. Uh, this is a Florida coin. I don't know if we can use this, but uh, no. <laughs> but it says something in the very bottom. It says e pluribus unum, right? Have you ever noticed that before? E pluribus unum? And does anyone know what that means? You all know what that means. If you know what it means, you don't have to say it out loud, but just kind of nod your head. Maybe you had to learn this in civics class, or you're a recent immigrant and you had to go through your citizenship class. You probably had to learn it. It's kind of interesting because it was chosen by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin as they were thinking about a motto for our country, and it means something very specific to our country. It's also unique because there's 13 letters in E Pluribus Unum. There was 13 original colonies that became the original states of which our country, America, was founded on. And E Pluribus Unum means out of the many, one. It's kind of a beautiful sentiment when you think about it. it represents something about ourselves as a nation, even though it's something that we haven't always lived out real well. I go down south, and I feel like I don't belong here. Or maybe you visit the Midwest where I'm from, and they talk with a different accent, and there's attitudes that are different, and sometimes we don't feel very much like one, especially when it comes to voting and things like that. But it's a sentiment that expresses a desire, that out of a diversity, we want a type of unity. This was a phrase that was used throughout the ancient world. Our founding fathers didn't make it up. It probably comes from a famous Roman philosopher and statesman named Cicero, who's quoting an ancient philosopher named Pythagoras. You've probably heard of the Pythagorean theory. You've probably heard of maybe both of these guys. And he quoted him saying this, when each person loves the other as much as himself, it makes, out of, it makes one out of many. What a beautiful statement that almost could come right out of Scripture. When each person loves the other as much as himself, it makes one out of the many. Unity is both desired, but it's also important for us as God's people to remember this, that it's incredibly elusive. We want unity. God calls us to unity. We're going to see scripture here in a moment that calls us to this, but it's hard. It is so elusive that sometimes when we see it, we're skeptical and think that can't be unity. Maybe that's some kind of a show. This morning, we don't have a lot of time because we're going to spend most of our time in the Lord's table and in the baptism and in our, in, our, in our business meeting, but I want to set us up for next week. Last week, we had a little bit longer sermon. Next week, I'm trying not to be a longer sermon. This week, though, it will be a shorter sermon. And I want to set us up as we head into this next section of our service and then our, our business meeting to follow, but also understanding that, that we've talked a lot about spiritual gifts and the unity that God's building in our church. And we're going to be talking about it more in the, in the future, starting next, with next week's sermon. But I want us to set us up here in a second to understand what the Holy Spirit of God is doing in our midst. In this passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit of God is bringing a unity out of diversity through the gifts that he gives to each one of us for God's glory and our flourishing. 
As we look at this passage, the first main idea of the way the Holy Spirit works in our life to bring us into unity, to out of the many make us one, to e pluribus unum, I know that's terrible to, to use it as a, as a verb, but to e pluribus unum us, to bring us together as one people. The way that the Holy Spirit is doing that is through the ministry and the work of the church, and especially how he gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So our first main idea is this, it is the unified purpose of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's first look at verse 1 in this chapter, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week, but let's just say in the church of Corinth, there was some dysfunction. People had these manifestations of God's Spirit, sometimes even doing miracles, but they were not always being used in a way that honored and glorified God. In fact, sometimes gifts were being used in a way that glorified the preacher or glorified someone else in the congregation and wasn't serving the body of Christ well. Sometimes it it was even turning into kind of a, a, a very sensual thing. So all of that and a little bit of background we'll talk about more next week. But he says to them, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, before you were saved, when you just worshipped the gods of this city, you worshipped Zeus and you worshipped Aphrodite and you worshipped Diana and you worshipped all these gods, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Paul acknowledges here that not every spiritual reality is of God. We should not be ignorant of this. The Spirit of God works within our lives and within our hearts, and in the way it shows itself is that we declare our allegiance to King Jesus. This is the purpose of the Trinity. This is what God the Father and God the Son do in drawing, or God the Spirit do in drawing attention in our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice here the diversity and unity that's going on in this passage. Notice the the word variety. There's varieties of gifts, but he reminds us there's only one Holy Spirit of God. There's varieties of ministries, but one Lord Jesus. There's varieties of activities, yet one God and Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're working in unity to accomplish God's purpose in the world. Look at verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, the same Spirit. There are varieties of the service, but the same Lord. There's varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. This is the unified purpose of God to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ so that we as his people could say, Jesus is Lord. So let's repeat that after me together this morning. Jesus is Lord. Let's try it one more time. Jesus is Lord. You can't say that with meaning in your heart, believing it, except the Holy Spirit of God helps you to do that. You might have said it this morning and not meant it. That's between you and the Lord. But it is the Holy Spirit of God that causes us to believe this and desire to yield our lives to Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is the unifying work of the Holy Spirit to create one body out of many parts. This is accomplished through the manifestation of God's grace called gifts. We'll talk about that more 
a little bit more in a second, but much more next week. It's important for now to understand that every gift that the Holy Spirit gives this church is not the same. Paul's making this really clear that to some, he gives one kind of a spiritual gift. We talked about this yesterday. Some are given the gift of pastors and teachers and some apostles and some prophets. And here he goes into different kinds of spiritual gifts, even sometimes miracles and miraculous utterances where sometimes people are healed miraculously. Or sometimes people have a gift of serving or mercy or giving. It is the Holy Spirit that gives us these gifts, and not everyone has the same gift. It's important for us to understand. Every part, though, makes up the whole. It's important for us to understand this. We don't have all we need in and of ourselves. There's a lie of individualism that says, one, that we can do it on our own if we just believe in ourselves and work hard enough. That is one lie. The other lie that says we're all alone. We need each other, and as people of God, the Holy Spirit of God gives us spiritual gifts to minister to one another so that we can become more like Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. And he goes on talking about these spiritual gifts. Verse 11 says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who gives to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body has one is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. And I want us to understand that every single part of the body is necessary. Paul then goes on to explain and use this metaphor that I want to take a minute or two for us to just to think about. In verse 14, he starts talking about this idea of us being the body. And maybe you've heard us as pastors talk about that before to you. You're part of the body of Christ if you're a believer. If you have a believer and have trusted in Jesus Christ and you declared your allegiance to Jesus, you're part of the body of Christ. You think that's kind of a weird phrase, especially if you don't, weren't raised in Christian circles. That's kind of an odd thing because you might say, well, this is the body of Scott. You're not part of my body, thankfully for you. Especially this morning, I don't feel like this is a body you really want to be a part of. So what does it mean that we're a part of the body of Christ? It means that we've come together as an allegiance to Jesus Christ, and, and we act and we, we minister in a way that is as if Jesus was here ministering to us. We belong to him, and he belongs to us, and we belong to one another. And he says we each have many members, and what he means by that is that there's different parts of the body. Have you ever been working? Some of you are handy, I know, and some of you are, are, are even tradesmen and craftsmen. I'm sitting in the back. I see Charlie right in the middle. I know Charlie is good with a hammer. Is that okay for me to pick on you, Charlie? And I can imagine Charlie working on in one of his houses, and he's swinging his hammer, and he accidentally swings his hammer, and he smashes his thumb. Has that ever happened? It's happened before, okay? And Charlie didn't curse or anything like that, but he was hurt, Okay, do you think if he smashes his thumb, that's a good time for him to sit down and do very serious mathematical equations? Do you do good at math when your thumb is hurting really bad? You're like, well, why would that be the case? That when your thumb is crushed, that your mind isn't super sharp. 
Maybe you've had a back pain and all you want to do is just lay in bed. And you're like, well, you could do other things, but no, your back hurts. So all of you hurts. Or you stub your toe and suddenly you can't do other things. Sometimes pain can be so bad that we lose our appetite or we can't sleep at night. When one part of our body is hurt, all of our body suffers, right? You are nodding because I think you've experienced this before. When one part of you hurts, all of you hurts. And what Jesus is saying to us through the Holy Spirit here in this script, this scripture is that every part is needed. And just because one part might seem to be less significant than another part, when one part is damaged, all the parts suffer. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. So if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would make it any less a part of the body. But if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, do I not belong to the body? Would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole ear body were an eye, would there be less the sense of would there be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? What Paul is saying to us is that every single part of the body, whether it's the nose or the hand or the foot, is essential. It's essential to our health. Kids, as you sit here, you may say, I don't really know why I'm here. I'm kind of bored. This guy, even though he says he's preaching shorter, doesn't seem that much shorter to me. And you might come to church because your mom and dad bring you. And Paul's saying to you, young person, that you're here essentially because you have a part to play in the body. Those of you who are under 20, do you know how encouraging it is to those over 80 that you are here in this service? Those over 80, can you nod your head or say amen that you're excited that young people are here in this service? Well, that doesn't, doesn't very convincing. <laughs> You're nodding, right? Okay, they're nodding, okay? They're nodding in agreement. You have an essential part to play. Those of you who are older, maybe your hearing's going and your eyes are going. You can't move as fast as you used to go. You're essential. You're an important part of this body. And yet, it is so tempting for us to look at our gifts and look at our abilities and to either sideline ourselves or to sideline someone else. And the Holy Spirit is saying to us here that every gift is important to the body because every gift is designed to show and to minister and to draw us together into the body of Christ and to display the goodness of Christ. Not everyone has the same gifts. If we continue to read, and next week we'll read a lot more of this passage, we'll see that every gift is essential, but not every gift is the same. And yet all of us are needed. Sonny, you don't know what your spiritual gifts are. We don't know yet either. You might one day be a pastor. You might one day be the guy that just comes in early and cleans up the toilets and makes things well or helps us make coffee and no one even knows what he does. But the word of God says that every believer, even new believers, have a spiritual gift that gets developed and used and grow. I'm excited to see over the next several years what your spiritual gift is and how God's going to use you. But one thing I know from this verse is that you are essential to this body of believers. So how do we live in that? And with this, I'm done, and it will seem like an abrupt ending, but it is what it is. It is the unifying love of Christ that protects our unity in the midst of our diversity. I'm going to repeat this again because it's important for us to understand. If you listened in Ephesians chapter 4 to that reading, you heard this word come up at least two times, love. 
It is the unifying love of Christ that protects our unity in the midst of our diversity. The goal of our gifts is to bring us up into the love of Christ. Not just the fact that we understand that Christ loves us, but that causes us to love one another. This is what our church needs. This is what our churches around the world need. We need to be unified in the love of Christ. And that just protects our unity, but also allows us to serve in the love of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Scott, that sounds very sweet. But show me in the word that it says that. Paul gets done going through this huge list of gifts and challenging them with with some of their misconceptions about gifts. And he ends it in chapter 12, verse 31 by saying, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then he goes on to say this, but I will show you a more excellent way. More excellent way than miracles? More excellent way than great preaching? More excellent way than speaking out in, in foreign tongues that people go, wow, what happened there? Paul says it's a more excellent way. And then he goes into this passage, which we're not going to read, but which is beautiful, and you're probably familiar with it. The love passage, which says, which calls us, it says, if I speak in the tongues of men and even angels, but I do not have love, I'm just a noisy kong or a banging cymbal. In chapter 14, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. What Paul's saying to us is that spiritual gifts are important. Yes, God uses our gifting within the body of Christ and to serve our world around us. But unless it is controlled and constrained and led and governed by the Spirit of God toward the love of Christ, we will use our spiritual gifts to hurt one another and to take advantage of one another. So brothers and sisters, we are coming together here in a moment. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and we're reminded of the deep, deep love of Jesus for our sins, for us, how he forgave us of our sins. And then we're going to gather together as two churches, and we're going to try to become one church. And the only way that we're going to be successful in accomplishing this is that we set aside our own desires, our own selfishness, and we pursue the unity of Christ, and we do this letting love cover this. When the love of Christ governs the way we relate to one another, our gifts are able to flourish. And there's no sense of worrying about who's getting preeminence and who's getting sidelined and who gets to speak more and who gets to do this because love is governing that and Jesus Christ is glorified.